Luke chapter number 7 tonight. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 36. Luke chapter 7, verse number 36. The Bible says, And one of the Pharisees desired him, desired Jesus, requested of him, that he would eat, that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meat. By the way, you just notice it doesn't say he sat down to vegetables or soy. It says they sat down to meat. It says, And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat say unto thee. He saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor, the Lord says, which has had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave the most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. They that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. Let's pray together. Father, we love you tonight. What a blessing to be in your house. Pray that you would, Lord, take thy word and use it in our hearts and minds. We need it tonight, Lord. We need to... We need the help of your word, Lord. We need the guidance, the wisdom of it. So help us as we as we read it tonight, as we study it, as we preach it, as we listen to it, that our hearts would be open, that Christ would be magnified, Lord, and that you'd be able to do an eternal work in our lives. And we'll be sure to thank you for what transpires, Lord. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to notice in particular what the Lord Jesus says in verse number 47. He says to Simon, in talking about this woman and her sacrifice, of praise and of worship unto him. He says, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. I want to preach to you for a few moments tonight on loving much. It's interesting to read this passage, and the Bible gives certain emphasis to certain words within the text. And I, I think we ought to notice that emphasis as well. I think about this scene unfolding in this little home, and undoubtedly all three of these people, meaning the Lord Jesus, this woman, and Simon, the, the master of the house, the, the man that owns the house, they all three saw this scene unfold. And the Bible emphasizes that they all three were watching what took place. The Bible says in verse number uh, 37, Behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, 
and anointed them with the ointment. So we know what she's looking at, right? She's looking at the Lord Jesus. Verse 39 says, Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself. The Pharisee is watching this woman uh, and, and beholding what's taking place. And yet the Bible says that the Lord Jesus, knowing what was taking place within the heart and mind of Simon, he says in verse number 40, and Jesus answering, isn't that interesting? Because the Bible says in verse 39 that he spake within himself. Jesus answered him when he was speaking within himself. Can I say this? That's just like God does to us today. He knows the inner thoughts of mankind. Has the Lord ever answered a question you didn't know you was asking Him? <laughs> something you was pondering on, thinking on in your life, maybe something that you were weighing back and forth, and all of a sudden God just dealt with your heart. And I don't mean He spoke audibly, but I mean He dealt with your heart and just gave you uh, some truth that you needed in that moment. I know certainly when I was a lost uh, sinner as a 10-year-old boy, I'd been told my whole life that I was lost, that I needed to be saved. And uh, not in an ugly way, but that's biblical. Amen? Nobody's born saved. You're born again to be saved. And uh, I was raised in a Bible-believing church and a Bible-believing home, and I was told my whole life that, you know, if you've never accepted Christ, you need to be saved. You're, you're naturally lost. You're naturally in that condition. Unless you come to Christ, you'll stay in that condition. And I've been told that my whole life, and I guess I had a certain academic awareness of that. I was raised, as I said, in a, in a Christian home, good Bible-believing church. I was even raised in a Christian school, and so we would do Bible curriculum in school. I remember doing catechisms and having to memorize them and answer them, and I would have answered that one correctly if they had said, a person, are they born lost? Do they, does everybody need to be saved? But I remember as a 10-year-old boy alone in my bedroom, uh, troubled, disturbed at the thought that I, that I was lost because I knew that I was, and uh, thinking about eternity and thinking about heaven and thinking about salvation and the Spirit of God dealing with my heart and answering the question that I was struggling with on the inside, which was, if I died, where would I go? And the Lord answered that and said, Toby, if you died right now, you'd go to hell, but you don't have to. You can trust in me and I'll save you. I'll forgive you. And uh, sort of the same way. So the Lord Jesus, he's watching Simon. He's listening to what Simon says. So all three of these individuals are watching this scene unfold. And I think we could characterize it this way, that when the Pharisee saw this, he saw a great sinner. The text tells us this woman was a sinner. Uh, and what that implies to us is she is a woman that had a lot of baggage, a lot of past behind her, a lot of shame, a lot of embarrassment, a lot of sin in her past. This Pharisee, he can't look past her past into the present of what God is doing in her life. He cannot look at who she is now and tell something about her past, although the Lord Jesus tells us that He can do that and that we likewise can. We look at her love of the Savior, we can tell something about her past, but instead all He can see is what she's done in her past and nothing else. So the Pharisee saw a great sinner. I like what the woman saw though. The woman instead, she ain't focused on her past sin. She's not focused uh, in being fearful and, and apprehensive and insecure in the presence of this religious man. Her focus is entirely on the Lord Jesus Christ. We could say it this way, the Pharisee saw a great sinner, but the woman saw a great Savior. Her eyes and her focus was not on anybody else, what they thought of her, or even what they thought of Jesus. Her mind had already been made up when she had asked for forgiveness and been born again, been saved. She didn't care what anyone else thought about Jesus. She knew what she already knew about Jesus. So she just 
She kept her focus on Him. Let me say, times when people grow critical in our life, and sometimes we need godly counsel and godly criticism in our life, but I'm talking about when people just want to dredge up our past and when people just want to give glory to uh, the brokenness of, uh, of our past, things that God's already forgiven and, and forgotten by His grace. You say, what do you do, preacher? You just keep your focus on Jesus. Don't worry about what they're saying. You just keep your focus on the Lord. Keep on serving Him. But I like what the Savior saw. Whenever He begins to talk to Simon about what all of this that's unfolding, what it means, and what can be discerned from what's taking place. He does not necessarily exclude the woman's past. He deals with that. But He points to the fact that her actions on that night disclosed to Him something that was within her heart. You know, the way we live is what discloses what's in our heart. Above anything else, you can say a lot of things, but it's the way you live that dictates what's in your heart. And he looked at her actions, and what he saw was that a great work had taken place in her life. She had indeed been a wicked sinner, but she had come to the Lord and in faith trusted Him to forgive her of her sins, and it had righteousness imputed unto her. I believe with all my heart when the Lord Jesus at the end of the, the passage when He says, Thy sins are forgiven thee, I don't think He's saying from this point forward, I think He's saying, I can tell by the love you have for me that there has been a great work of forgiveness that has taken place in your life. I think He's speaking retroactively about that. And I think He's saying this, that when He looks at her life, He sees a great salvation that has taken place. He sees a woman whose life has been changed by the grace of God. And he says that he can tell that by how much love that she showed towards him. I have no doubt that all of us in this room that claim to be Christians, that we'd all say we love the Lord. And I don't doubt that you mean that. I certainly hope I mean it in all sincerity. I believe that I do. But my question tonight is not if you love Him. My question is how much do you love Him? And I don't just mean how much do you feel like you love Him. I mean how much... Does your life testify to the love that you have for Him? When we look at this woman, the emphasis the Lord Jesus is laying is that you don't have to listen to what she says. And in fact, it's interesting, according to the testimony and record of Scripture, we don't have her speaking a single word. Nowhere in this does she say, I love Jesus. Nowhere. There's no moment where she stands up and says, I want to declare that I love the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet Christ looks at this woman's actions and says, by her actions... I can tell that she loves me. And it speaks louder than any words she could ever say. Man, I hope that's true of my life. I want the, the loudest proclamation of love that I have for the Lord. I, I don't want it to just be a, a testimony of praise that I give Him verbally. I want it to be the testimony of my life that's lived before Him. That I'm living a life that's well-pleasing in His sight. So when we read this text, we find that there's basically three things that are disclosed to us. Three truths that are mentioned to us. And I, they're simple truths. I'm probably not going to tell you anything you don't already know. But I want you to notice them with me tonight. I'll go ahead and tell you what they are. The first, the Lord Jesus reveals to us how our love is molded. What I mean by that is, what is it that shapes and that defines the sort of love that we have for the Lord? There are certain things that cause us to love Him. Certainly, the Bible tells us the reason why every believer loves Him, and this is why we love Him, because He first loved us. And so our understanding of that fundamental truth, His love for us, what that act entailed and what that act involved will determine the nature and the depth and degree of the love that we have for Him. So how our love is molded. The second thing He deals with is how our love is measured. 
In other words, what can we look at in our life and determine how much we love the Lord Jesus by? And finally, he deals with how our love is manifested. How do we express that then? What is a way that he wants us to show him how we love him? I believe it's important that we try to accept and acknowledge what people's intentions are. I, I don't buy a lot of this stuff of saying, well, I only accept people showing love to me in this way or that way. You can say that. You're probably going to be a lonely person. Somebody say amen to that. I think we ought to try to discern when people are with good intentions trying to show love towards us. But let me say this. I want to love the Lord the way He wants to be loved. I, I don't want to just sit back and say, well, Lord, this is who I am, and you either like that or you don't like that. Let me say that when I could say nothing other than that, He loved me anyway. Uh, when I was uh, you know, without any redeemable qualities, He still loved me. But I want it to be that my life is shaped in such a way that the way that I live for Him, the way that I love Him, is the way that He wants to be loved. So what do we learn from this text? Well, whenever Simon is looking at this woman, he's thinking these things within himself, and, and really it's interesting, it's not even as much a commentary on her, his criticism of her is just a means of criticizing Jesus. And I think very often when we're loving the Lord and serving Him, that's the case in our life as well. We have to be reminded of that. Very often when we're criticized in our service for the Lord, it's not really us they're, they're criticizing. They're criticizing us as a means to criticize Him. They, they're trying to tear us down because it's a way to tear Him down. And that's what Simon does. He says, if, if this man were a prophet, and if I could, if I could just sort of walk into Scripture, open the door, and speak into that moment, I would have said, Simon, he's a lot more than a prophet. He's not just a prophet, amen? He's not just a teacher, but he's God in the flesh. But Simon says, if this man, you know, if, if he were a prophet, if he, if he knew what, what manner of, of woman this, this woman is and, and the things that she has done, he would never allow, verse 39, this man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him. And this is why he says, for she is a sinner. Now, the Lord Jesus, in reply to that, he tells a very short parable. And he says in verse number 41, there was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave the most. And he said unto him, thou hast rightly judged. Now on a casual reading, the great temptation in reading that little parable will be to draw this conclusion that the worse a person is before they get saved, the more they will love the Lord Jesus. Uh, I know there's a lot of people that sort of have that implicit attitude. And you can tell it when people give testimonies. They, they give a lot more emphasis on the, the, the muck and the grime than they do on the mercy and the grace uh, when God saved them. But that's not what the Lord Jesus is saying. Let me say, if that's true, then I've got a real past to not love him very much because I was a 10-year-old boy raised in a Christian home, raised in a Christian school, raised in a Bible-leaving church. And uh, while there was certainly a lot of sin I'm sure I'd committed in my life, uh, there was not a lot of sin relative to the world's idea of what sin is. And that would suggest that I don't have to love him very much, that I'm not expected to love him very much. By the same token, it would suggest the only way a person can love the Lord a lot is to first get out into deep, and uh, despicable sin before they ever get saved. I don't think that's what the Lord's saying. I don't think that's what he's getting at. Notice if we just sort of deconstruct what he says here, if we just take it phrase by phrase, there's four things that he mentions. First, he mentioned their relative debt. He says there was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed 500 pence and the other 50. 
Now, both of these sums, by the way, were pretty large sums in that time. Uh, the pence being a, a day's wages. And it's suggesting that both of these men had borrowed a pretty sizable amount. But it's interesting that the Lord, He does not try to claim that all sin is the same, that all sin debt is the same, that there's no difference or distinction. He acknowledges there are some people that roll, uh, that they, uh, they uh, load up a large bill of sin before they get born again. There's other people, I praise God for it, that saved at a young age that don't have as long of a list of sins that they have committed. But notice that the next phrase that's mentioned, even though the Lord acknowledges that reality, He completely precludes it from being a factor in this parable. He says, and when they had nothing to pay. Can I tell you something? It's true there may be some that are in the very depth and mire and depravity of sin. I mean, live ugly lives and things that they're embarrassed about and ashamed about things that they don't want to mention in indecent company that they have done. And then there may be others that have lived a life of great societal morality. You know, they've kind of lived the way that society expects them to live, so much so that maybe they can kind of incognito blend in even amongst church folks because they're not living in open rebellion against the things of God. And you say, well, preacher, do both those people, are they both sinners? Yes. Is the measure of their sin the same? Not necessarily. But understand the outcome of it would be nonetheless. You know why? Because both these men, though, one owed 500 pence and another owed 50. The reality is both of them were completely incapable of paying the debt that they owed. Here's the truth. Whether you've lived a long life of shameful and embarrassing sin and things that you shudder to think of and things that you say, well, God couldn't forgive a man of this. God couldn't forgive a woman of these things. You might turn and look at a young person who thankfully has not tainted their life in that way and say, well, now, that's a person that God could save because he's not done all these things. Can I tell you this? The few sins that are, that, are, uh, that are disturbing that may have been committed in that person's life are just as unpayable as the many sins that you've committed in your life. Both parties are completely unable to pay the debt that they owe. You know why it has to be by grace? I'm not just saying it gets to be by grace. I'm not just saying that God prefers for salvation to be by grace. I'm saying salvation has to be by grace. You know why that is? Because none of us has the ability to pay our sin debt in the first place. We all are continuously running up that sin debt. And unless something addresses it that's bigger and greater and deeper and better than who and what we are, a form of righteousness that is more pure and more lasting and more meaningful than the sort of external obedience that we might be able to display, unless something more potent than that takes care of it, we're just going to keep running up the debt nonetheless. We might pay yesterday's debt, uh, but what are we going to do about the day before? Uh, we might pay yesterday's debt, but we've run up a new debt today. And then tomorrow we'll pay that one, and tomorrow that one. And at the end of the day, we'll take no principle off of our sin debt. At the end of the day, we are all bankrupt to pay our sin debt. Every single one of us. And so even though it may be tempting to look at it and say, well, these two people, they're so vastly different in what they owed to their debtor. That's true, but both of them are completely unable to pay it. And both are in the exact same situation. This time in human history, they would have been hauled off to a debtor's prison. Uh, they would have maybe been sold into servitude. Uh, both of them had a completely hopeless fate in front of them. So really what, what it's saying here is it doesn't really matter the distinction between those two debts in regards to how the creditor forgives them. Notice not only their relative debt, he mentions their rank destitution, and then notice their remarkable deliverance. He frankly forgave them both. I like that word frankly. It means honestly, uh, forthrightly. To be frank with someone means to speak the absolute open truth. And what it means is he immediately, with no reserve, forgave both of them. 
Now, I don't know if I can communicate this right, but I want you to think about this with me. Both of these men owe their respective debts. One's a bigger debt than the other, but neither of them have the means to pay. Think about the utter bankruptcy of these individuals, how that has changed the equation for the creditor. He knows there's no recourse because you can't get blood from a turnip. Amen? You can't. It's impossible. So his only recourse then was to condemn both of these men to a life of destitution, servitude, and hopelessness. In other words, their complete inability to pay had somehow equalized the entire situation such that, listen carefully, could they have paid their debt? There might have been a difference in the decision of the creditor. But because both were bankrupt, the creditor would not have gained any more money by not forgiving one and forgiving the other. For him, he looked at it and said, both of them can't pay, I'll forgive both of them. In other words, in your life and mine, this this parable, the purpose of it is not to say, well, you know, you have less sin than somebody else, so you don't have to love them as much, or aren't you really a good person because you haven't done this and you haven't done that? But it's to cause both of us to look and say, you know, the creditor wasn't benefited in any way by forgiving me, but he did that anyway by his grace, by his mercy, through his love that he has for me. The purpose of it, in other words, is not to minimize the debt, but it's to magnify the grace and mercy of the creditor. He says then this, tell me therefore, Which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. Stop and think about that phrase. Who did he forgive the most? Now, did they have the means to pay those debts? It'd be very easy to say, well, he forgave more to the man that owed 500 than he did to the man that owed 50. But from the perspective of the creditor, neither of them could pay. He'd get no more out of one than the other. So it really becomes a matter of perspective concerning how the debtors look at the situation. That's what he's trying to teach Simon. He's saying, you look at this woman and you see a great sinner, but I look at this woman and I see that she has a great sense of the sin she has been involved in. And then, proportional to that, she has a great idea of just how much grace and mercy and love it took to forgive her. Can I tell you what it is that determines how much we love him? Uh, It is how much we think of Him, that's true. But it's how honest we're willing to be about how lost we were when He first found us. You know, when I found that people fall out of love with Jesus and grow into being the cynics of every other person's behavior in life, it's when they begin to believe that it didn't take very much to save them. When they begin to believe that they had really done about half the work for God in the first place, they were a pretty good person as it was, And God just sort of came along and brushed them up a little bit and gave them a basic theology course. Instead of recognizing, they would have went to the same devil's hell that that addict would have went to, that that harlot would have went to, that that drunkard would have went to, and that it took as equal a measure of the grace of God to forgive them as it took to forgive that person that they're pointing at and saying, how could God ever allow that person close? By the way, isn't it interesting? This isn't what I'm preaching on, but can I mention it? He says... Why would he allow this woman to lay hands on him, to touch him, to be close to him? In other words, why would he allow her close to his body? You know, in the New Testament dispensation of grace, what his body is, right? It's a picture of the New Testament church. In other words, it would be the equivalent of somebody looking around and saying, why would they allow that person to come into the house of God? Why would they allow that? Don't they know what they've done? Don't they know what they've been into? Don't they know the things that have happened in their life? Don't they know the things they've committed and done? 
And the Lord Jesus says you're missing all of it if that's your perspective. It took as much grace to save you, you know, children's church kid. It took just as much to save you, you know, Bible quiz champion kid. It took just as much to save you, vacation Bible school working kid, as it did to save the most wretched sinner that ever walked this earth. And therefore, it's no great difficulty for God to save the most wretched man, for it took the same to save him as it took to save the best, or what we would call the best amongst us. So our perspective of our sin debt is what molds our love. Then notice number two, he mentions how our love is measured. He turned to the woman and said unto Simon, verse 44, Seest thou this woman? He says, Simon, I want you to, you think you see her, but I want you to really see her. You see her relative to her past, but I see her relative to where she is right now in this moment. And here's what I see, Simon. He says, I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins which are forgiven are, uh, her sins which are for, which are many are forgiven for she loved much. So in other words, the Lord Jesus looks at the actions of this woman and says, I can tell she loves me a lot by the things that she's done. And I can tell by the fact that she loves me a lot that she had many sins in her past and she was keenly aware of those and has been forgiven of those. In other words, he looked at these three actions by her and said, that's how you can tell how much she loves me. What are those three actions? Well, I would say this, number one, our love is measured in the worship that we give him. She comes and the Bible says that she begins to weep at his feet. And she took those tears and washed his feet with those tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. This denotes a deep, personal, passionate movement of heart that she was moved to tears at his presence. I believe, and you can dispute this if you want, we'll get to heaven, you'll find out I'm right, and that's okay, but I think the reason she was crying is she was overwhelmed with gratitude at what he had done in her life. I don't believe these were tears of misery. I believe these were tears of rejoicing. And then the Bible says she takes her hair and washes his feet with that. Now, it's interesting. You know, the Bible has something to say about women's hair. Uh, whenever Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, he, he talked about a woman's hair and said the woman's hair is her glory. And there's a spiritual import to that that really doesn't have anything to do with aesthetics. But it deals with the fact, and, and I believe Paul is drawing a parallel to the great care and the great pride that many women uh, take in, in their hair, and it's viewed as sort of a status symbol. And he's saying that's something that's meaningful to them, that they treasure, that they guard, that's precious to them. So Paul says this, that's their glory. That's the thing that matters to them. That's the thing that's important to them. That's the thing that they put so much work into. And this woman is taking that and washing his feet with in other words, we could say this, that in this act, she is trying to intimate to him that he is worthy of her very best. I'd say that you can tell how much we love him by how readily we're willing to worship him. How often we're willing to fix our thoughts in gratitude on what he's done in our life. And how often, I mean, this was something that obviously she wasn't embarrassed about. But in Simon's world, she obviously should have been embarrassed about. Because Simon has a lot of criticism towards her about it. Had she been like most people, she would have thought, well, I don't want to make a fool of myself doing that. But she said, I'll gladly make a fool of myself because he's worth that much. I'd say the worship that we give him. Number two, I'd say that his love is measured in the witness that we give him. 
The Bible says, Thou gavest me no kiss, verse 45, but this woman since the time I came in hath not ceased to kiss my feet. Now, there's two things I want to say about that. One, of course, a kiss that's being spoken of there is, is not something that is passionate or romantic in nature, but it's talking about a greeting. In the New Testament, the Bible talks about greeting one another with a holy kiss. In fact, it's in one of the epistles to the church at Thessalonica. And when we were teaching on it, I shared that my pastor growing up, uh, people asked him, somebody asked him one time, said, Pastor, why don't we do that anymore? And uh, let me just say two things about that. One, if somebody asks you that, don't talk to them anymore. Just don't. But then, too, he, he looked back at him and he said, I'll tell you why we don't do it, because people couldn't keep it holy anymore. Amen. And I think there's some wisdom there. But at this time in history, this was, this was how people greeted one another. It was a public way of disclosing and displaying affection and friendship and reverence for somebody. And even today, when we kiss someone, we are doing that to show to them and to others around that we have affection for them. We are associating ourselves with them. And the Lord Jesus looks at Simon and He says, you know, you weren't willing. An equivalent today would be to shake my hand. You weren't willing to salute me. You weren't willing to hug me. You weren't willing to kiss me. You weren't willing to show people that I was welcome in your house and that, that to associate yourself with me. But this woman, she has constantly shown others that she wants to be associated with the Savior. I'd say in our life, if we really love Him, we're going to tell others about Him. We're going to want to identify with Him. We're going to want people to know, hey, He's our God. We're His child. He's my Savior. He's my Master. I'm His servant. No question about it. Uh, what a shame it is when Christians live in covert Christianity. And there's all sorts of excuses why. Uh, listen, specifically if you work a public job, they'll tell you all kinds of foolishness, nonsense. But the reality is, not only is it your constitutional right to be a Christian in your workplace, but it's your biblical right. Even if we didn't have a constitution, constitution acknowledge some things and observe some things, Praise God for it. But you have, it's incumbent upon you as a child of God to not live in a way that would show shame towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Man, if we really love Him, we won't be ashamed of Him. I would say in the witness that we give Him. And then notice in verse 46, He says, My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Earlier in the text, there is much uh, emphasis given to the fact that this was a very costly sacrifice. This woman has an alabaster box and it's filled with ointment. And uh, we're told that this would have been equivalent to an entire year's wages. Now, I don't know how they know that. I don't know if that's for, a, you know, a trucker or, you know, a camel driver or, you know, what that is. But the idea is that it was costly. It was something that was beyond the means. It wasn't a casual sacrifice. It was a meaningful offering that was given to the Lord Jesus. And listen, I hate to kill church on a Sunday night. Uh, but I'm going to say it because it's in our text. I'd say in the wealth that we give him. Is there anything in your life you think he's not worthy of? You know the perspective on giving? I'll go ahead and preach this on a Wednesday night. You still with me? You all right? You okay? You sure? All right. It's either going real well or going real bad. And I give up trying to figure that out years ago. <laughs> so, uh, you know, here's the right perspective on giving. It's not... How much does he deserve? But rather it's he deserves all of it. And the question is how much does he want? Now here's the reality. It's not even how much he needs. Because he doesn't need anything. But it's how much does he want of my life. And by the way, we could certainly quantify that in monetary means. 
Uh, and in our text, I think it is, but it goes beyond that. Any area of our life, when there's something the Lord wants, and we say no, what we're really saying is, we're not worthy of it. We have no excuse not. If it's time, if it's our testimony, if it is indeed our treasure, if it's maybe some relationship in our life that doesn't glorify the Lord, maybe some hobby or some habit that we've developed. And the Lord says, I want that. That's hurting you. That's doing shame to me. That's dishonoring me. And I need that from you. You don't need to do that in your life. You need to give that up. Maybe there's some area of our life where we're not doing what we need to do. Something that we should be doing. And the Lord says you need to start this in your life. Could be our prayer life. You know, I mean, it could be witnessing. Could be studying our Bible. Could be being faithful to church. Could be being intentional in our interactions with people to try to look for opportunities to share the gospel. But whatever it is that God deals with us about, and we say, no, Lord, what we're really saying is we're not worthy of those things. Now you say, preacher, that's a harsh take on it. Well, no, it's a truthful take. Were we dealing with anyone else, we might be able to say, well, I can't give that up because I might need it or I might miss it or it might hurt me or I can't start doing that because I have this obstacle and I have this excuse and I have this reason. But when we're dealing with an omniscient God who knows all things and would not ask anything of us, that He would not enable us to be able to give to Him and would not ask us to do anything that He would not empower us to be able to do, then when He says, I need this, and we say, no, what we're really saying is, uh, you're not that important to me. Not important enough to do that. You're, I love you. I just don't love you that much. I would say our love is measured in these things. And then finally, I'll be done tonight. We see how our love is manifested. Verse 47, the Lord says, Wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. Now, because the Bible makes abundantly clear that He doesn't love us because we first loved Him, but we love Him because He first loved us, we know that our text here is not suggesting that when the Lord saw how much she loved Him, in response to that, He said, okay, I'll forgive you. Now, there's a thousand theological problems with that, but even setting those aside, we have clear scriptural evidence. That's not why He loves us when we were yet without Without Christ, God sent forth His Son into the world. When we were in sin, He sent Him to die for sinners, right? Uh, for a good man, some would die. For a righteous man, uh, peradventure, some would die. But God committed His love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were without God in this world, without hope. But He sent His Son to die for us. So in other words, He loved us when we did not love Him. So if she then is pointing, if he then is pointing to her love and saying, now by her love I can tell some things. He's saying, I don't have to go down to the gossip mill to find out she's a sinner. I know she's a sinner. She's a sinner because she loves the Savior. Can I tell you the type of people that love the Savior? Sinners. <laughs> can, I, can I tell you the type of people that love loan officers? Poor folks. Can I tell you the kind of people that love doctors? Sick folks. Right? Can I tell you the kind of people that love the Savior? It's sinners. Because sinners need Him. I said, but preacher, you're saying some people are not sinners? I'm saying some people don't know they're sinners. And some people, even after they're told, they want to argue about it and suggest that they're not sinners. But the moment we realize, oh no, we are. I'm a sinner. Then we're going to run to the Savior. My pastor used to say, it's not hard to get people saved. It's hard to get them lost. 
once they realize they're lost, really that they're lost and they can't save themselves, and if they died, they'd go to hell, then why would they not want to come to Jesus? The trouble is getting people to really grasp that. That that's the reality of every person's situation prior to knowing the Savior. So the Lord looks at it and He says, I can tell some things. I can tell that she was a sinner because she loves me. But not only that, He says, I can tell uh, that she's been forgiven. And the way I can tell that is because of how much she loves me. You know, have you ever found that debt has the ability to dissolve friendships? You ever notice that? If you have somebody in your life that you really would prefer not to be in there, best thing you can do is loan them $100. It's a cheap way to get rid of a nuisance. Because it won't be long. They won't ring your phone no more. Because they don't want to have to pay it. Whenever there's unsatisfied debt in a person's life, and I don't know about you, I'm not not big friends with the uh, bank that holds my mortgage. Amen. It has a way of dissolving fellowship and friendship. Once the debt is resolved, the way is made for a relationship to exist. So he's saying, I can tell by the fact that she loves me that she is a forgiven person. Has it ever dawned on you that the world's not going to listen to our theology until they see our love for the Savior? And I'm not saying they don't need theology. I'm not saying they don't need truth. Uh, The Bible says the gospel is the power of God's salvation. Not your testimony, the gospel. Not not our story of how we got born again, but the gospel is what is the power of God and salvation. But I'm just saying it'll go a long way towards them caring if they can look at our life and see, boy, you know, they seem to be the real deal. They really love the Lord. You can tell that by the way that they live. It says, but to whom little is forgiven, he says, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him... <laughs> Again, to say within themselves, who is this that forgiveth sins also? See, they're still talking about Jesus. They're still criticizing Jesus. They're not even talking about this woman. And he said to the woman, thy faith hath saved thee, go in peace. How do you manifest it? What does it look like? I wrote three things down. One, in boldness. It took a lot of nerve for her to do what she did on this night. It did. To go into this room of religious men, Pharisees, and for her to go in and just, just weep. And just worship and just take that little offering that to her was so much, to her was a vast wealth, but probably to these wealthy men was just another offering, just another gift. And to take it and give it like it's her very heart. And to just sit there and weep, wash his feet with her hair, kiss his feet. Boy, what nerve it took. But see, here's the difference. She wasn't even paying no attention to Simon. She just kept her eyes on Jesus. And that gave her the boldness she needed to do that. Why do we lose our nerve? Because we get our eyes off Him. We keep our eyes on Him, we keep our nerve. You know why? Because He's worthy. The world tells us He's not worthy. Remember, this is to Simon, this is all about how he can tear Jesus down. Imagine, she would have lost her nerve if she had started listening to Simon. But she kept her eyes on Jesus and never once doubted that He was worthy of all that she could give to him. Not only in boldness, but also in brokenness. Boy, she wasn't ashamed to weep. She wasn't ashamed to just rejoice in what God had done in her life. She wasn't afraid to be vulnerable in that sense. Boy, I'll tell you, man, it's it's scary. And it happens to all of us. It happens to all of us. We just kind of get over it. It gets where it don't affect us like it used to. 
We can get up and we can sing songs about the grace of God. And don't move us like it used to. We, we can even kind of spout off our testimony. And don't even move us anymore. Like it ain't real. Like we're telling somebody else's story. I'd say this. That the more that we love Him. Or maybe, I, let me say it a little different. The more tender our heart is to Him. The more easy it'll be to love Him. The more easy it'll be to love Him. And then I would say this. We manifest it in belief. I love this. And you may have a different read on this. If you do, you might be right, I guess. Uh, but you're not preaching, so we're going to hear what I think about it. Look what it says in verse 48. And he said unto her, thy sins are forgiven. She already knows that. That's why she's there. He's not saying it for her benefit. He's saying, don't worry about what these guys are saying. Your sins are forgiven you. That's why you're here tonight. Is because your sins are forgiven. You've come in brokenness, in boldness. You've come and you've given this offering and this sacrifice and you've worshipped me. Your sins are forgiven. You can see how easy it would be to get unnerved. People sitting around scrutinizing you that way. People whispering through the crowd. This woman's a sinner. Isn't she a reprobate? Isn't she a wicked, godless woman? The Lord Jesus says, don't worry about them. Your sins are forgiven. And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves... Who is this that forgiveth sins also? Now they're speaking audibly, right? And you can almost imagine that as the woman's walking out of the room, she hears something said and stops and turns and looks back. And the Lord Jesus just sort of waves her off and says, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. Don't pay no attention to what these people are saying. They're always going to have scrutiny. They're always going to have cynicism. They'll always be scorners and scoffers. Always have. Time immemorable. There's been. And there will continue to be. But he says, don't you worry about what they say. You worry about what I say. You go ahead and trust me that what you have is enough. You've placed your faith in me. I've forgiven you. Your background, your baggage, your history. These men may want to bring it up, but I'm done listening to it. I already know everything about your past because I can see how much you love. What a precious way for the Lord to frame that. Isn't that the opposite of how the devil frames things? He wants to take your past and beat you over the head with it, tie it around your neck like an albatross, chain it to your back like a burden and make you haul it around. The Lord Jesus, He instead looks at it and He says, Oh yeah, I know you're a sinner. That's why I saved you. And I know you were a sinner. I can tell you were a sinner. I can tell it by how much you love me. The real question is, are we loving Him in a way that bespeaks a real awareness of what sinners we were? Or have we just sort of got over it? We've got used to it, man. We've got a routine. I'm not against routine. I'm not against order. But uh, there's a danger in it. My pastor used to say a rut is nothing but a grave with both ends kicked out. I'm not against routines, but I am against ruttings. Amen. I'm against getting just, just going through the motions. And have we learned how to do that in our Christian life? Have we learned how to do it when we come to church? Just shift in neutral. We know what to expect. We know how it's going to go. Or have we come to offer our broken heart before Him and let Him do something real in us? How much do you love Him? Is there an area of your life that He says, I, I need that? Maybe an area of your life where He says, you need this. But you've said, no. I'm sorry, I'm unwilling. Sorry, I don't love you that much. You're not worth that to me. Boy, what a shame that'd be. Instead, we ought to love Him the way that He deserves. Let's bow together tonight as a musician comes. The altar's open. Listen, if God dealt with you, why don't you come on down right now? Don't wait. Uh, don't, don't let the devil rob your nerve from you. He'll do that. Right now your mind's made up. 
But if he can get you to stay in that seat for a few minutes, he might steal your nerve. He might bully you into just sitting there, putting it off, do it a little later some other time. Don't let him do that. If he's dealt with you, you go ahead and come on now. Come on now. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name.